0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books and East European Studies podcast series. I am your host, Amanda Swain. Today, we'll be talking with Alan McDougall about his recent book, The People's Game, Football, State, and Society in East Germany, published by Cambridge University Press. In The People's Game, Alan McDougall looks at football from the top down and the bottom up as a tool of the state, as forming regional identities in East Germany and in a reunified Germany and as a popular pastime. For our listeners in the United States, I want to clarify that we are talking today about what the rest of the world calls football and we call soccer. So I'll make sure to try and say football and not soccer during the interview. I found this to be a very interesting book um, and a way of looking at really important uh, questions about identity and relationship between citizens and state through the lens of sports. And I'm looking forward to talking to Alan today. So welcome to New Books in East European Studies, Alan.
1: Thanks for inviting me.
0: You're so welcome. And as a more detailed introduction, I wonder if you would tell us about how you became interested in studying the history of Eastern Europe.
1: Sure. Well, I, I think the beginning of that answer is that my, my father was a Spanish teacher. And so when I chose a language to study at school, I chose the opposite of my father. We had the options of Spanish or German. So I ended up studying German. And um, became very interested growing up in the 80s. You know, I was always someone who played a lot of sport and was very interested in, fascinated by even then by the sort of East German athletics dominance of the Olympics, which was, of course, widespread, universal in that decade. So and, and for some reason, always had an emotional sort of investment in East Germany rather than West Germany for a bunch of different. I don't I'm not even sure of the reasons for that. Um, so that was really the beginning of it. And um, cultivated that university. And, um, of course, at the, the time I was then kind of going into my graduate school in the sort of mid-90s, that was when the East German archives were opening up. And it was just a very exciting time to be a, a sort of a young scholar working in the field of East European studies. Really.
0: Mm mm-hmm. So So why did you choose sports as a lens through which to analyze the topics you are interested in and tell us a bit about what seems to be a developing field in sports history and sports studies?
1: Well, I picked sport. I mean, it was partly a a personal preference in that it was something I was very engaged in, um, both in scholarly sense, but in a non-scholarly sense, um, And I felt, in terms of East Germany and perhaps more generally Eastern Europe, that the the kind of the narrative of sport under communism was very much focused on, very much the sort of Cold War stereotypes of sort of automatons and um, state sponsored doping. And I knew there were many more interesting narratives sort of beneath that. And football seemed to me the sport that encapsulated or or showed the way to get to that greater complexity. um, First of all, I would say. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the the wider field, well, that's a very interesting question. I think that sport has, sports history has, it's just a very interesting field. It, it places itself across a number of disciplines, which in some ways can be a strength, but also I think means that it doesn't really have a home. Um, and from, from a historian's perspective, it seems to me a subject, if you compare it, for example, to, to another aspect of popular culture like cinema, to, to be underrepresented. So I guess there was a sort of a slightly proselytizing aspect to kind of making sports history a a subject that historians, not just of Eastern Europe, but historians generally should should take increasingly seriously, which I do think is happening. Mm
0: -hmm. I'm encountering it more and more. So I was very interested to read your book because it's really the first full work I've read in this uh, new field. And you tell the story of a taxi driver asking why you would bother writing a history of football since the sport was characterized by mediocrity yeah. compared to other sports in East Germany. As you mentioned, they they dominated the Olympics and mm. a number of sports, but certainly not uh, football. Yeah. So why football? What was it about football rather than, I don't know, weightlifting or some other sport?
1: Well, I think in the very mediocrity is the, is the attraction in a way, because I, I remember that A couple of reviewers of early manuscripts, uh, which were generally very supportive, also pointed out the same thing, you know, I wonder if there's a whole book in this, but um, I mean, the the simple answer is that despite the East German obsession with uh, Olympic sports like weightlifting, as you mentioned, or swimming or track and field, as in most European countries, most South American countries, and indeed most of the sort of non-North American world, you know, football was the most popular sport, both in terms of participation and spectatorship. Um, and there wasn't really a, a study that that kind of approached that sport in a holistic manner, I guess. Um, and it was also a sport, and I guess this was what was the most interesting aspect when I initially took on the project. It was it was clearly a sport from the bits that I read and researched that. The state struggled to control Um, in a way it could control those Olympic sports more easily, whether it was through doping or talent spotting of young athletes or training programs um, or just the fact that they were individual sports. Football, because it was a team sport, um, because it wasn't really important to the Olympics, particularly not in this period before the uh, before 1989 and because it had a mass following, i.e., people invested their time in it as a spectators as well as players, it just seemed to be an interesting way of um, you know, sort of contributing to very lively recent discussions in East German historiography, but from a from a under discussed or maybe even undiscussed perspective.
0: Hmm. So let's start with the description of the post-war reconstruction of Mm -hmm. football. And at the time, it wasn't a political priority for the state, but really there was a grassroots drive to kind of reestablish football clubs. Um, So can you tell us more about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting period. I mean, in some respects, it was the the toughest aspect of the book to research because there was, um, I mean, East Germany generally has these huge archives. It was a very well-policed state. But uh, the early period, which is... Period from 1945 to 49. You know, there's no officially no East German state. We're still in the Soviet occupied zone. So in that period, there's just a great deal of political flux. Obviously, in the beginning of the Cold War, and naturally enough, in the prevailing political and economic circumstances, sport was not given great investment. Um, at least not until probably the late 1940s. That was when the the, the ruling Communist Party, the SED, started to think more seriously about sport as a vehicle of sort of. Cold War point scoring, possibly for mobilizing um, a sense of socialist identity. But in this early reconstructive period, priorities lay elsewhere. So as you mentioned, a lot of the drive to develop or rebuild sporting structures, particularly in football, came from from the grassroots. And and I think an aspect of the the study that I tried to emphasize throughout was the ways in which agency came, even in a a state-dominated by a, a top down approach like East Germany, even in that kind of state, in sport at least, and in other aspects of popular culture, I think there was a lot of grassroots agency in, in setting up organizations and, and making them successful.
0: So, how then did the new East German state get involved in football, and what did they see as the role of football in establishing a new state and a, this new identity as East Germany?
1: I think that probably the the short answer is they didn't see football playing a particularly important role. Um, You know, I say, I say somewhere in the book, I think in the conclusion that the, the, the SED tolerated football through gritted teeth. And, and there are some exceptions to that in terms of individuals, as we'll perhaps talk about later, who are very passionate about football, but I think the party leadership as a whole, um, uh, you know, was, was rooted in that sort of Marxist scepticism about sport as a kind of opiate of masses. And football is the worst representative of that in a way, in the sense that it was not only distracting to play, but it took, you know, people watched it in large numbers. It took away from more productive aspects of socialist production. So I think the SED initially, um, you know, gave football a fair degree of leeway that does begin to change in the late 40s and early 50s which is when the east german dictatorship really begins to take root it's when east germany the german democratic republic is founded in 1949 and from that point on there are attempts to to kind of bring football onto a more obviously communist model for example restructuring relocating clubs giving them more communist names associated with workplaces bourgeois clubs so that does begin in the 50s but it's a it's a it's yes. It, it's never the. I would. Ne- I would say it's not really the SED's greatest priority, even in the field of sport. That tends to be um, particularly later on the Olympics, of course. Uh, and even when the SED does put um, emphasis on on kind of reforming or restructuring football, it runs into to, to lots of resistance. And of course, the SED itself is far from a monolithic entity. You know, there there are regional and local differences organizations within and associated with the party. So, yeah, particularly in the 50s, I would say it's a pretty complicated and messy picture.
0: Mm -hmm. So in part one, you analyze the players Mm -hmm. and particularly the tensions of being paid to play sports in a socialist system. So tell us about some of these sports figures and their relationship with the state and with society.
1: Well, I mean, this is a very interesting aspect, I think, of um, the study of not just East German sports stars, but uh, Eastern European sports stars in this period, particularly because on the one hand uh, they were to use the very famous quote about East German athletes, I think diplomats in tracksuits. you know, they were in East Germany's case, some of the most successful representatives of the state abroad, not so much in football, but in other sports. Um, But they were also at the same time, uh, often, you know, celebrities, you know, whether locally, regionally, or in the cases of the bigger players nationally. Um, And so for the state and and the communist state, of course, with its emphasis on the collective and its kind of wariness of individualism and celebrity to some degree, um, the players often found themselves in in quite difficult, well, you know, what could be quite tense positions, I guess, on the one hand, trying to manage the expectations of the state, which, you know, controlled football ultimately. But on the one hand, um, being quite privileged rep- representatives of, for want of a better term, the people.
0: I thought it was interesting that you pointed out um, that particularly with football, that they're being paid to play the sport, mm. but they weren't necessarily very good yeah. <laughs> and this mediocrity. Yeah. And so, and that, that, you know, that, that, that also then um, affected the way that, you know, kind of people and, fans viewed them that they were privileged yet they weren't fulfilling perhaps expectations Mm
1: -hmm. yeah and here we have a narrative that is transnational and also transcends different times and spaces i mean i think you know fans as paying customers have always complained about underachieving footballers i mean that's or sports stars more generally that's that's not confined to east germany i mean i think it's brought into sharper relief in East Germany for a couple of reasons. One, of course, is that the state increasingly prioritizes and is successful in other sports, Olympic sports. So some members of the public see the success of an East German javelin thrower or swimmer uh, and, and compare that to the relative lack of success of an East German footballer. Now, of course, we're not really comparing apples and apples here because the competitive field in international football is much wider, arguably. And it was a team sport, not an individual sport. But nonetheless, that was one factor, I think, in the public's mind. And the other one, of course, which we shouldn't forget, is that in contrast to to the other East European communist regimes, East Germany always had that sort of big brother across the border, which from 1954 onwards was producing phenomenally successful football teams. And um, so there was always this alternative identity uh, that threatened the East German football nation, and that was alarming both to supporters of East German football, of which there were many ordinary citizens, but also to the state, of course.
0: Mm-hmm. And I'd like to come back to that relationship between West German and East German, mm-hmm. West German football and East German fans in a little bit, but um, to stick with this uh, conversation about the, the East German teams and their um, competi- competitiveness in the international realm, you subtitle um, the first section of your chapter on the national team, the beautiful losers. That's right. And certainly East German football did not achieve the international recognition that these other sports. So how much did East Germans care, either um, the state or the fans?
1: I think they cared a lot. Um, the state cared because after the Olympics, football was the most important sport. Football When, when, East, when East German state restructured sport in the late 60s, and they essentially divided sports into elite sport, performance sport, into two tiers. And the top tier got more funding. And the second tier, which included sports like tennis and basketball, was kind of cut off. Um, football was included in tier one. So that the football was important. Um, and, and they knew, of course, that it was the capitalist states that were generally doing well in the sport. So uh, the performance, I mean, there are... You know, myriad reports from across the decades by the state, various bodies of the state, lamenting the media, suggesting X or Y reasons why or how they could improve. And at the same time, you know, many ordinary citizens, uh, it bothered them as well. I mean, questions of how loyal East Germans were to the state more generally is one thing. But I think certainly the football team, you know, which was made up, of course, of players from individual clubs, many of whom fans supported the national team did excite uh, or could engage the public. And when it didn't perform, which was quite often, you know, could anger the public too. Hmm.
0: Um, so even though they did care, as you said, about the national team, it was really the the club teams at the local level yeah. that seemed to generate these really intense loyalties. So can you tell us about this kind of entrenched localism within um, football, both what the impact was within East German um, state and identity building, but also how this fits in more broadly with football clubs in the broader context of Europe. Mm.
1: Yeah. So in the East German context, I mean, it's interesting for a number of reasons. I mean, two of them, I suppose the first would be that East East German state, of course, was, was focused on creating a new socialist personality, a new socialist state. Um, in which collective identities based around a sort of an idealised socialist fatherland were emphasised. And so what the the authorities rather scathingly called local patriotism in football or other activities was was generally frowned upon. Um, And any localised activities under communism were meant to be state directed and controlled and to ultimately reinforce the kind of socialist fatherland. So that was one reason why localism in football could be problematic, because it was an uncontrolled or only semi-controlled aspect of this sort of localism. Uh, And the other one, I suppose, is that um, East German football and East German state was was trying to distance itself from pre-war narratives. And if we if we go back to the pre-war period in football, uh, of course, football, like other sports, was tarnished by the Nazi regime. Um, some of the most famous club names in German football had uh, collaborated with the Nazis, as had the Football Association. And so I think there's also an attempt to kind of um, make a break with older local traditions. Um, now, that can be done in cosmetic ways, name changes and so on and so forth. But, but um, disrupting or uprooting the more deeper, long-standing local traditions, that the communists found that much, much more difficult. Okay. And in terms of the sort of second aspect of your question, i mean it you know even in sort of the very globalized the sort of television friendly commodity that football is today, you know those local identities are still very important transnationally um because you know clubs generally are rooted in and and have founded in one one neighborhood in a community within a city usually so <clears throat> I mean, one of the interesting aspects of the story of East German football that I try and emphasize is the ways in which this is part of a transnational story. That although East Germany is in many ways a kind of a strange, isolated state with um, this very distinctive history of sport that we all know about, the doping and the Olympics and so on and so forth. It was also, particularly in football, very much part of a transnational story in which uh, local identities sort of reinforce themselves against outside in positions, whether it was an authoritarian state, whether it's commercialism, whether it was national teams. So in that sense, I think it's, it's, it's very important to the formation of East German state identity, but also tells us a lot about the fact that East German football is part of a transnational story.
0: Mm-hmm. And I thought that really stood out in your book, that both this um, very particular story of East German football, but also the ways in which it um, was similar or differed to you know, the, the global story of football as a sport. Um, but any book about the German de- Democratic Republic has to address the issue of the Stasi. So um, tell us about the relationship between football and the, the Stasi.
1: Well, football and the Stasi, the East German secret police, was, um, was a complicated relationship. Um, uh, there, there has been much literature on the Stasi and East German society. It's the single most fascinating aspect of the story in many respects. And of course, the, the success of films like the lives of others recently internationally has kind of only reinforced that sense of um, the Stasi's centrality to, to East German everyday life. And there's lots of scholarship on that too. Um, <clears throat> yeah. I, I mean, I mean, the first thing to say, of course, is that the East German football at the elite level in particular, but also um, in terms of fan culture increasingly in the seventies and eighties was heavily policed by the secret police. Um, The average level of um, informers in a football dressing room at, at a top division club was considerably higher than it would have been among the average of the population. So top referees, coaches, players, team doctors, Fan club leaders, you know, all of those people were approached by the Stasi. Some of them worked for the Stasi, usually as the, what were called unofficial informers or EMs. So at one level, the Stasi, Stasi involvement in football is extensive and, and, and has a, a damaging effect. And I, and I give some examples of that in the case of leading clubs like um, Dynamo Dresden, where the Stasi influence was particularly heavy. But I think what interested me the most was the fact that even in this heavily police state, this sort of highly saturated surveillance state, um, football, like you know, in some respects, like like popular music, um, was 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 a site that was you know, as I use this phrase, this sort of liminal site where even the stars you found it difficult to gain traction. Maybe that was less true in elite football, but certainly in fan culture and kind of lower down the food chain of football um, the stasi's influence was often quite patchy and it kind of it, it just complicates the picture of the sort of all pervasive and all knowing state that we that we see in films like the lives of others i think mm-hmm.
0: um, i'd like to talk now about the fans, which is the topic of the second part of your book. And you say that socialist spectatorship was meant to reflect the character of the socialist system, but football in East Germany was characterized by spectator unrest and hooliganism um, from the fifties through the eighties. So what led to this violence recognizing that that may have been different at different periods in time. And how did the authorities respond?
1: Well, again, I think, Excuse me. I think, in terms of the, you know, the, the violence in foot, in and around football stadia that, that becomes more pronounced in the seventies and eighties in East Germany, but but as you mentioned, existed all the way back in the fifties. I mean, again, that is part of a transnational European and indeed you know, global story of, of football spectatorship, particularly in the post-war period, um, particularly in the seventies and eighties when hooliganism becomes sort of the byword for international football, really, particularly in the English speaking world. So in some respects, the East German um, narrative is part gain of a global narrative. Um, But at the same time, um, uh, East German football and spectatorship becomes a sort of an indirect means of expressing dissent of various aspects of life in east germany i guess that would be the way to put it which is not to say that violence or protests of football grounds were necessarily anti-state or anti-communist it's certainly not to suggest that they were very often targeted to achieve a certain political goal but nonetheless um the ways in which protests occurred and violence occurred suggests um I would say, uh, you know, a very different image of the socialist state than the one, of course, that the regime liked to put forward in its kind of choreographed images of the young at, at kind of youth organization meetings or these big showpiece festivals that they began to organize in the late 50s. So, I mean, football is kind of like the underbelly of society, you know, the, the kind of subcultures um, where there is autonomy or at least semi-autonomy. Uh, and in which we get to see that the picture is a lot more colourful and a lot more complex than than we would, you know, perhaps in terms of Cold War stereotypes think. Mm
0: -hmm. And I was interested in your discussion that you've already referred to briefly of the subversive intersection of music and football and socialist popular culture. So can you talk more about that?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I think there's some interesting parallels. I mean, some of my previous work, I worked a little bit on the um, – my first book was on the, the Free German Youth, which was the communist youth organisation um, in East Germany. And I was very interested when I was doing that research on kind of the way in which the, the Free German Youth tried desperately to kind of respond to the popular support, popular craze for the Beatles and other sort of Western bands in the 60s. Um, and so so there's some interesting parallels between football and music in the sense that both of them have a – they're sort of global stars are based in the West. Um they're kind of so they they there's a sort of a cultural seepage across the Iron Curtain in both leisure pursuits. Um and they both have this this scope for autonomy and freedom, I think, that that makes the state anxious and that makes and, and that applies, I think, in particular to to football spectatorship. Um playing football is perhaps a slightly different aspect of it. but but football spectatorship in particular um, was part of a subculture in which um, going to games, listening to music, you know, drinking with friends, getting free rides on trains across the Socialist Republic. All of these things were kind of bound up with a kind of, you know, a defiant youth sub- youthful culture that is that, very different than the one that the state would like to see young people <laughs> engaging in.
0: Right. Um, And most of this was uh, being engaged in by being physically present at Mm. these um, uh, sport events. But the spread of television in East Germany resulted in what you call this mediated spectatorship. So what was the impact of this new way of engaging in sports and and by watching it on television?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think one of the things, What makes football interesting, particularly interesting as a sort of a sort of a site for the sort of social and cultural history of East Germany is that it's it's both a very public activity, both playing and spectating. But increasingly, uh, as you mentioned, as television becomes more prevalent in East Germany, it's also something that can be like music, uh, a private activity behind closed doors. So lots of this sort of most interesting elements in East German historiography have recently emphasized this sort of shift to more private spaces in East Germany, certainly in the 60s and 70s, which I think reflects, you know, wider shifts across the Soviet bloc in this period. And television plays a big role in this. And football on television certainly does. And I know from scholarship on, on football in the Soviet Union, something similar happens. This, it complicates the relationship between the state and society because now there's this Private sphere, um, where people can, for example, watch West German teams on television um, and can kind of comport themselves with relative freedom. I guess picture. I would say.
0: And um, now to come back to West Germany, as you mentioned, you know, right across the border in the um, in this divided Germany, there is the West German um, national team, which was a football powerhouse. So. How did East Germans feel about that? East German fans, in particular, like did they see that uh, the West German team as, as in some ways, their team? And and then what how, what, what did the state try to do about this um, this difference in um, uh, capabilities, so to speak, of the of the two national teams?
1: Well, the state um, generally, and again, this, the, the Soviet football team tended to do the same. Tried wherever possible to avoid, certainly in the 50s and 60s, playing too many of the world's leading teams and certainly would have run very fast from a fixture against West Germany. Now, of course, the two teams meet very famously once in 1974 when they have to at the World Cup finals, and East Germany, again, very famously or infamously, depending on your perspective, win the game. Um, But the state generally is... There's an inferiority complex in football, um, which I think reflects... um, a sort of insecurity and inferiority complex that, that crosses into many other areas of East German life when measuring up against West Germany whether it's car production drinkable coffee you know nice jeans good football teams all of these are areas in which West Germany seems to be markedly superior than East Germany so the state is on the defensive generally in terms of the fans well the reactions are very interesting and I I interviewed a lot of fans for this project and talked to people off the record too. And there was a wide variety of responses. Some people supported the West German national team instead of the East German national team. Some people supported both the East and West German national teams. And some people supported the East German national team and didn't really like the West German national team because they kind of felt there was a sort of a Western arrogance about it and that there was a sort of a rather patronising attitude to the socialist neighbour, either patronising or based on ignoring the socialist neighbour, of course. And, and that certainly upset some people. So, yeah, there, w- there wasn't really one single fan model, I would say. But what I would say is that most fans who loved football uh, were, were international. Most um, football supporters are and and would watch games involving West Germany because West Germany was a very good team.
0: Mm-hmm. Well where would sports history be without a good scandal or a crooked champion so tell us about the Berlin Football Club and particularly the 1988 championship.
1: Well um, Dynamo Berlin or Berliner FC Dynamo BFC as their acronym would be uh, was essentially the football club of the secret police, the Stasi, who we've already talked about. Um, the, the, the head of the Stasi, one of the most powerful men in East Germany, was Eric Mielke, uh, long-standing communist, um, a man who actually his first love was ice hockey, um, but but was also very much invested in this football team, Dynamo Berlin, um, which had kind of developed in the 50s and, and was renamed Berlin FC, Dynamo in the mid-60s. Um, and then from the late 70s until 1988, um, BFC wins the, the East German National Championship for 10 straight seasons. Um, so it dominates East German football. And um, I mean what's interesting about this story is that you know, from a kind of social and cultural perspective, is it causes uproar in the sort of East German football community and indeed beyond it, sort of particularly peaking in the mid-1980s when there are widespread accusations that the BFC are corrupt, that they're buying referees, that matches are fixed in advance. And so there's this, you know, a a very visible um, campaign based primarily around what were called petitions to the authorities, letters of complaint essentially. Um, challenging BFC's dominance. And in terms of specific, well, there's the, the specific, I mean, I, I highlight a couple of specific games in the, in the the chapter I have that focuses particularly on this. Uh, the 1985 Cup final against Dynamo Dresden was, was probably the tipping point. Dynamo Dresden were, were BFC's main rivals. They were also sponsored by the police, um, but not the Stasi, so uh, other, other organs within the police. And Dynamo Dresden for various reasons, were a popular team. Uh, They were the best-supported team in East Germany. Um, They had quite a lot of neutral supporters who liked them as a second team. Um, So there was a big, bitter rivalry between the two Dinamo teams. So they met in the cup final in 1985. Dresden won the match, um, but in very controversial circumstances that that triggered a flood of complaints to the the press, to the um, football association, to the party. Um, and eventually kind of forced the authorities to 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 make some changes in how football was governed, um, to punish referees, and to kind of try to put a lid on this this anti-BFC protest, which which, you know, was particularly in a state as politicized as East Germany, you know, carried some dangerous 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 elements for the communists.
0: So the book is titled The People's Game. Describe for us football as a part of everyday life in East Germany.
1: Well, I think one of the interesting aspects of, of football as an object of scholarly research is, is where the focus has always lain. And generally speaking, and returning to our sort of earlier question about sports history and the evolution of sports history, I think because sports history um, as a field or subfield of history evolved at quite a late stage, um, the initial sort of wave of that sports history was often quite institutional. So you'd be explaining how structures worked and kind of focusing on a top-down approach and the elites. And then, of course, the other aspect of football history in particular that fascinates people endlessly is hooliganism. Uh, we see that in the media, we see it um, in films, and we also see it among scholars. But the aspect of the story that I think goes underreported it is is precisely this element of the ways in which football intersects with Um, to use a term really from sort of 20th century German historiography, alltagsgeschichte or everyday history. And so the the final sort of part, the third part of my book, I I tried to look at the ways in which um, football shaped sort of daily routines and patterns. And so here I was interested in looking at sort of football away from fighting fans and, you know, the stars of the top division um, and looking at, facilities for ordinary fans uh, sorry for ordinary players um very interesting story. of women's football in east germany and um kind of recreational teams essentially um, and again this was i mean tying this story into to trying to understand what life looked like on the ground for ordinary east germans which i think is a harder task to do because the authorities were less interested in recording this so we have lots more sort of archival football hooligans, or underachieving East German footballers than we do on pub teams in X or Y town or village.
0: In the book's int- introduction, you present three interlinked arguments about football's significance in East Germany. And as we've already discussed, to some extent, uh, football gave people a means of expressing identities that were separate from or even opposed to that endorsed by the state. So could you explain for us the term Eigensinn and the implications of these different identities that people held?
1: Yeah, sure. I will do my best to explain Eigensinn. Although I think most scholars who've worked on that term um, probably couldn't explain it entirely. So I'm going to try my best. The term was originally uh, acquired by Alf Ludke, of course, one of the prominent uh, historians of 20th century everyday German history, writing initially about the Nazi period. And Eigensinn... Kind of you know, I mean, a more dictionary transition would be something like obstinacy, I think, or kind of stubbornness. And it was meant to denote initially kind of the response of workers in factories under the, the Wilhelmine and Nazi regimes, their response to kind of authorita- authoritarian bosses or kind of their interactions with authority and the ways in which factory workers distanced themselves from or created space from authority, essentially. And the term was then transposed to East German, the field of East German studies, when that became very big in the 1990s, and was kind of slightly reduced to kind of um, being vertical, that is to say, about author- uh, distances between authority and ordinary people, so to speak. But there's also um, a sort of horizontal horizontal aspect, aspect to Eigensinn, which is the ways in which people create spaces from each other you know and football I think was a very interesting vehicle for sort of both this vertical and horizontal Ive the ways in which fans stubbornly if you like created or players created identities that were distinct from the socialist state but also distinct from the neighboring village the neighbor uh, you know the neighborhood on the other side of the city um, or the rival club at the other end of East Germany so it seemed to me an interesting way of Sort of accessing a sort of football's fluidity and ambiguity as both a site of compliance with the state, because obviously football is very reliant on the state for funding, structures, and so on and so forth, but at the same time as a site of agency. Um, whether that agency can be read as resistance, uh, you know, that raises a whole bunch of other questions, but I think is a, a profitable way of kind of getting into that discussion in terms of football.
0: Mm-hmm. And you um, just referred to what you uh, speak of as a constrained autonomy mm-hmm. in which these East German citizens lived, um, one that was shaped both by the tensions between this pressure for conformity, um, but also this, this forming of this obstinate forming of separate identities. So um, you know, what was this environment um, and how does, how is football really revealing that of this, this constrained autonomy?
1: Well. It- I mean, I think, you know, there are almost two narratives of East German history. There's the one that we, I think, is more popularly well-known, which is based on, to take the most obvious tropes, uh, massive Stasi surveillance, a uh, deeply unpopular authoritarian state, um, East German medal machines with kind of semi-robotic, drugged, mostly women athletes kind of sweeping all before them at Olympics, all of which plays into that. The older view of East Germany as a sort of totalitarian state in which individuals were kind of crushed beneath the collective will of socialism. So that's one of those narratives. And obviously, there are obviously elements within that story that remain true. Um, we know that Stasi's famous of football, as we've been discussing, was quite extensive, for example. But at the same time, and as scholars of East Germany, particularly those interested in everyday aspects of popular culture, have been emphasising in the last 10, 20 years, there are other stories at play here as well. And the ways in which citizens um, created identities that existed, uh, I would say alongside more than against um, state pressures and state directives. And I think football is a a great example of this. Um, And in some ways quite a unique example of this because football was um, perhaps more than any other form of popular culture was it was popular, it was visible, it was played regularly, so there was a rhythm, there was a calendar, games happened all the time, it wasn't like the Olympics, and it was highly versatile. So it meant that it could serve both the state's interests at certain points, but also um, those of citizens who could invest in it, the meaning or meanings they saw fit. And, of course, that applies to, to authoritarian dictatorships across the world in different times. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And... Your book, like a much recent scholarship, as you've mentioned, uh, really is revealing the fractures in what what had been perceived as this monolithic East German state. So how does football expose the limits and dysfunctionalities of the East German state and of the Communist Party's leadership?
1: Well, I think football does it in a number of ways. Um, I mean, one level is transnationally, The football, because of the ways in which Players and fans always have one eye on the West, and also I should emphasise, sports officials do as well. You know, there's there's a there's always this transnational element uh, to use the phrase that's used in the historiography of cultural exchange here that goes on, despite the political enmity between East and West Germany. So that the kind of striving for a socialist narrative is always undercut by the transnational elements at one level, the ways in which West German League, the Bundesliga on television, the ways in which they travel to Czechoslovakia or Romania to go and watch Bayern Munich, the leading West German team playing, for example. The ways in which players, in a small number of cases, leave East Germany for the West. The ways in which coaches demand um, contacts with coaches in leading football countries like the Netherlands or Italy or elsewhere. So there's this transnational element that undermines or complicates the story. But then there's also the um, local or regional aspects which uh, complicate the attempts to create a, a really solid socialist national identity in East Germany. Um, and to go back to the example I mentioned earlier of um, Dynamo Berlin versus Dynamo Dresden, the sort of most bitter rivals in East German football. I mean, that rivalry was rooted in a number of different aspects, but it had a um, deep, deep-rooted deep historical It was based on a deep-rooted historical rivalry between, essentially, Saxons and Prussians. Dresden was a major city in the region of Saxony, and, of course, Berlin was the capital of the old kingdom of Prussia. And so a lot of the sort of hate clubs, particularly their supporters, was based on, you know, Prussian versus Saxon pigs, to use the terms of insult that they would have used at each other.
0: So what role has football played in German reunification and in regional identity today among Germans in the East?
1: Well, that's a very interesting aspect of the story, I think, is that, you know, again, I think we tend, there's a certain narrative that we tend to think of with the the end of East Germany and the collapse of East German sport. And again, the focus here is generally in that narrative on the exposure, the full exposure of the East German doping program, kind of the, Obviously, very sensational things that came to tr- came to trial in some cases in terms of the revelations of the doping program. But a very interesting aspect of the story, I think, is is what happens to football in East Germany after 1989 and 1990. Because in contrast to Czechoslovakia or Poland, um, East German football loses all of its structures. They're not reconfigured into a sort of a new. Post communist league, they are subsumed into the pre existing West German structures, the Bundesliga, which by this point is one of Europe's most profitable leagues. So, I mean, this fits, of course, with wider narratives of a sort of annexation of the East that's felt in industry and other areas in the post unification period. So, football. So, I, I mean, I suppose the first thing to say is that football in East Germany after 1989 kind of falls off a cliff most of the teams struggle to complete to compete in a capitalist environment they're totally unprepared for it players depart for west germany in large numbers the clubs either through financial incompetence or in some cases corruption collapse or are relegated to the very lower divisions of east german football Uh, east german football in this period in particular it becomes a byword for for hooliganism um, there's, a, there's a very violent subculture around many East German clubs, including the um, Dynamo Berlin, the big club of the 1980s. So on the one hand, this is a narrative of failure and decline. But on the other hand, there are there are aspects of the story that play into a sort of almost a paradoxical reclaiming of a sort of East German identity that, that is stronger after the state collapses than during the state. So. You know, the the odd East German teams that do well in the 90s, like Hansa Rostock or Energie Cottbus, become sort of markers of a posthumous East German, even socialist identity. So in that sense, football plays into what historians of East Germany have called ostalgie or sort of a nostalgia for the East, which is, of course, by no means confined to uh, East Germany in the post communist States in the 1990s, that's happening in other places too, as the kind of hard realities of life under free market capitalism kick in. So I think that's one interesting aspect of the story um, that, that we can certainly emphasize.
0: Well, I really enjoyed reading the book and I learned a lot about the East German state and East German society um, by looking at um, your analysis of football. So I'm, I know that our listeners will um, also enjoy both this conversation and hopefully pick up a copy of the book to read. So thank you again for being here today. And I'd like to close with our standard final question, which is um, tell us about what you're working on now.
1: Well, I have a couple of projects sort of in the next three or four years, I guess. Um, One is a football history, a, a social and cultural history of an English football team, Liverpool football club. Uh, the disclaimer here is that that is my own football team. Uh, and so it's, it's, you know, in the nicest sense, as a vanity project. Um, but it's also a kind of an attempt to sort of shift away from East Germany to, to kind of broaden my sort of transnational approaches to football. So Social Cultural History of Liverpool Football Club is one project. And then I'm also working on various articles um, on uh, East German football and East German sport and In fact, German football and sport uh, and their representations in popular culture, particularly in film and media. So that is also uh, sort of a longer term project as well. So hoping to my my interest in football and, and continue to show its importance as a kind of marker of modern European social and cultural history.
0: Well, great. Those both sound like really interesting projects. And hopefully we'll have you back on New Books Network um, once your next book project is completed. Um, But thank you again for giving us your time today.
1: My pleasure, Amanda. Thank you.
0: And thanks to our listeners for joining us once again for this podcast of the New Books in East European Studies. And we look forward to uh, next month's um, interview as well.